0: I'll talk a bit about Australia, but my paper will be quite meta-theoretical. And uh, I am going to deal a bit with uh, the perennial uh, cliche almost with which uh, physics work is is associated. Not an event, but a structure. Not an event, but a structure. Not an event, but a structure. I'm aware that people sort of like take it. with it whatever they want. I know that it has a history of people against it and for it, cliché in it all kind of ways and people criticizing the fact that it is a cliché for their own purposes in a very cliché way. Um, so, uh, but at the same time I think uh, when something becomes so cliché it becomes actually uh, in need of some critical reflexivity because we kind of like Especially when something appears as if it's easy to understand. Not an event, but structure. You know, you don't want to dwell on not an event, but structure. Of course, you know, I know the difference between an event and structure. And so I don't want to think too much about this. I know what it means. And let's look. Uh, I want, well, I want to know what it means. <laughs> uh, what does it mean when you say not an event, but structure? Uh, what do we mean by event? What do we mean by structure? Uh, And so, obviously, it establishes a whole set of dualities that became very... uh, And I don't look at duality as, oh my god, it's a binary. Uh, uh, (laughs) I don't mind binaries. (laughs) Uh, They help me think a lot, and I think reality is full of binaries. uh, Even if they don't necessarily neatly exist uh, in the world, And uh, so um, what I want to talk about is that that formula and the way I reflected on it in relation to my most recent uh, book, which is coming out actually uh, exactly in a month's time, uh, which is called Is Racism an Environmental Effects," And it's it's a work on the relationship between uh, ecological domination and uh, racial uh, domination. And uh, and so first, let me talk a bit about event, event structure, and how I come to think some of the problems with not with it, with, with it as in using it as a tool. Uh, first of all, uh, we differentiate event structure as uh, questions of temporality. Uh, events are short-term structure is long-term. That's one of the imaginaries that come uh, straight uh, into uh, our mind. Uh, another way would be ontology. Uh, we think uh, structure, that that an event is happening, uh, while uh, a, a structure is made out of uh, a structured pattern of practices, pattern of practices as opposed to just a, a happening. Uh, but also we differentiate event and structure, uh, because we think, uh, we think that an event might be happening at the moment, of uh, agencies maybe be given, so we need to understand what people what they are doing something, so it brings down the question of what is it that we want to know here uh while the structure is more more sort of like in order of determinism. And of course we can also think event structure in terms of classical Marxist Marxist categories of appearance, uh, surface surface kind of like phenomena as opposed to deep phenomena applying different technology analytical technology to, to capture uh, what is going so, on. But also, and I think that's very much in the mind of Kattek uh, when he wrote, well, there's a moral dimension uh, which has to do with the continuity of evil if uh, in, in uh, the notion of uh, not an event but a structure. Uh, it's, it's, it's about uh, the fact that uh, the colonial moment in Australia was this ongoing argument that the colonial moment or the settler colonial moment in Australia is not just a point of history. That uh, this possession of indigenous people is something that is happening again and again and again. So there's the question of the recurrence of practices that is uh, in practice mind. And so how do we uh, how do we conceptualize uh, the question of recur recur? said also not not so easy. What do we mean? What do we mean when we say it is always present? Uh, So uh, does it mean it's something that happens cyclically? So we have a little bit of civilized Australian democratic behavior, and then we lapse into uh, barbaric colonial uh, elimination. Uh, Is it a kind of like, uh, yeah? is it a historical pattern? Or is it a synchronic thing that, that in fact, the practices of dispossession, And the practices uh, of civilized democracy are actually coexisting uh, uh, diatonically, and there's some kind of like uh, vacillation or oscillation between. Or uh, are we saying uh, that the barbaric is always present in the civilized? And so this more the thinking, how is the barbaric present in the civil uh, is very much part of uh, of the problematic then of not an event uh, but structure. How is uh, uh, the moment of uh, extermination or elimination, not, not always extermination, etc., how is that present in a beautiful moment where the uh, a very nice cosmopolitan couple uh, in Sydney go into a shop uh, and say, I love indigenous art, uh, it gives me a voice. So, uh, so the understanding then is that that refined, sublime moment when I'm sitting in front of a, of a painting, indigenous painting, and thinking, wow, look at this! I so love indigenous art, et cetera. Inside that moment is the barbaric moment of so how then can we capture the fact that these two uh, dimensions then coexist? Uh, how do we analyze uh, their, co- their coexistence? Now the relation, if you like, between barbarism and civilization, also we have a long history of analysis, um, and we have a do- dominant ways of uh, thinking. And one of the dominant ways is what we might call a repressive hypothesis. A repressive hypothesis, not in that usual way we know it in social theory, but related to it a bit. But it has an element of that barbarism is a state of chaos, etc. And the law comes and represses the chaos. So whether you're thinking political theory with Locke or you're thinking uh, like, uh, laws laws of the tribe, laws of society, or whether you're thinking the unconscious as the chaotic uh, uh, spite of emotions, etc. and the ego and the law, law of the symbolic comes and represses. All of this involves this idea that there's chaos, barbarism, and Repression mm-hmm. and civilization comes at the cost of repression, and sometimes we have an intrusion. Mm-hmm. The law fails, and the chaotic, the barbaric comes to the surface, and we know uh, that Now, this is what I'm saying this is more the thinking, the relation between the barbaric and and the civilized is very uh, common, even folkish, like most people think in everyday life. Now, there is another way of thinking, that this relation between state, anarchy, law, chaos, civilization, barbarism, is not just a question of fashion but an argument that, in fact, the barbarism is the very condition of possibility of civilization. You notice, civilization is not just repressing barbarism for barbarism to prevail. Rather, it is barbarism is the condition of possibility. Okay, so what you can take a very simple example of, like you know eating steak, and say that killing of the animal is the condition of possibility of the steak. And so, so how do you think, and how do you separate the killing from the state Is part of the history of civilization. <laughs> and what I uh, think, and I want to think, uh, think with this precisely. This uh, my argument is that not just settler colonialism, but particularly settler colonialism, because it has a particular uh, difficulty of geographical conjuncturing of of the colonial with the non-colonial model (laughs) has a particular difference which is that that history of managing of managing the disappearance, the invisibility of the barbaric in order for the civilized to exist. The history of managing the divide between the barbaric and the civilized, the history of making sure that those who are living in civilization don't see the grounds on which their civilization is uh, built, is the more you repress it, the more you make it disappear, the more you can be considered a civilization. Uh, and, and so that question, how, how does it happen, how does it occur, is uh, at the core of the civilizational process to use novel time. Uh. Now when we think about a relation, when we say that the barbaric is a condition of possibility, it becomes much more difficult than a repressive form. Hypothesis because on one hand you want it. You need it. That is, you need the barbarism for civilization. So it's not a question of eliminating the barbarism. You need the barbarism in order to have the civilized model. But you need it, and at the same time you need people to experience the fact that they don't need it. And so and so how do you manage for of like this, societal. In a colonial situation, because of the geographic se- separation, uh, it might appear a little bit easier. But when you have a geographical contiguity, uh, it becomes a little bit harder uh, to actually, if, if let's say, uh, you know, you can live in Paris and not think that. Parisian life was dependent on Algerian shit happening (laughs) and using shit especially to convey that there is shit there, sort of like, you know, it's happening and that was the condition of possibility of the good life in Paris And and so you can create the division more easily because of the colonial distance but how do you make sure you're living in Tel Aviv and not think that your global cosmopolitan life is dependent on what's happening five kilometers down the road is dem- demands a much more evolved technique of management of the present. <laughs> uh, and it's not always successful, etc. But this is part of the technique of. Civilizing. And notice then, it becomes a very important boundary here that we're talking about, because <coughs> when we think about colonization, we think immediately uh, the boundary is the warring boundary between the colonizer and the colonists. But that's not the boundary of the management of civilization, because the boundary that's crucial for the management of civilization is the boundary between the space where you're warring where you are actively colonizing, and the space where you don't feel you're doing any colonization at all, You're just uh, benefiting. In fact, uh, in the Islamic jurisdiction, uh, uh, it captures more of this because there's Dar al Haru and Dar al it's not. It's not there's the space of war and the space of peace. And what you want people not to see is not is not the enemy. It's. The whole world is the enemy, so it's a space of war altogether that you want to shield in order to let people think that they are living in a space of peace which is not dependent on this on state of peace. Now, what seems to me is one of the things that I uh, started working with in this uh, book, um, and which I have a very funny memory uh, when I started talking about it to Patrick and I want to mention that. Uh, because you see Patrick, as some, some of you have already uh, noted, Patrick is very enthusiastic about ideas. And if you don't know him very well and don't have a semiotic of his commentary, you never know really whether he likes what you're saying or not. <laughs> he gets he like he's capable of just emailing you. oh, it's a fantastic idea, so like blah blah blah, and <laughs> somehow over time, I said, "Don't like it." Uh, <laughs> so like, yeah, give me more. So, so, so it takes a while then for the clash to happen. We of course had many, but it takes time for them to evolve. And I just unfortunately I'm living with that one which never evolved. Where I. He said, "What a great idea!" And I just. <laughs> <laughs> Not like it, but I never knew or it out within the previous why, but, but and so it has basically uh, me kind of like mobilizing uh, master theory of primitive accumulation uh, to uh, this uh, question of the management of. Of barbarism, civilization. Because if you know in Marx, Marx's theory of primitive accumulation, and what I'm calling barbaric accumulation, in order to avoid to not to bring the primitive into my anthropological sensitivity. Uh, But the question of barbaric uh, barbaric accumulation, what is it? of you know, but I just remind you very quickly, in which Marx, Marx criticizes uh, classical political economy. In, in fact, he, he loves that, uh, that. The idea of the accumulation of wealth originates by some people being really frugal and saying, I'm not going to spend money, I'm going to be very really careful and et cetera. and some people being kind of like, ah, I'm gonna have a good time and spend, and the people who uh, sort of like are careful end up accumulating a lot of money, and the people who spend, uh, etc. cetera, as, as David Kramer said one recently, like it's funny that, there isn't a single anthropological example at any level of society of this action being observed. <laughs> <laughs> some people going, oh, sorry. <laughs> like, I'm gonna be careful, and some people are going <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so for, for Marx, indeed, it was a funny, funny situation because he said the origin of the accumulation of wealth is actually butter. it's actually theft, dispossession, illegal, sort of like appropriation, this is the origin of wealth. And so this is what he called primitive accumulation of capital. It's when the capitalists hoard, plunder, etc. Now uh, in Marxist scholarship there was a long debate whether primitive meant a bit similar to the idea event of structuring, in the sense that Marx means that at one point of history capitalism needed to plunder in order for capitalism then to become uh, etc. <clears throat> or is primitive in the sense of a recurring structure where capitalism continuously needs to plunder in order for it to exist at a, a certain and the most Marxist scholarship today, like including more recent like David Harvey, etc., go for the structural argument that capitalism continuously needs to vacillate between legal modes of accumulation and barbaric modes of, uh, of accumulation, which is why we see it continu- continuously um, going barbaric over uh, plundering and appropriating indigenous properties, even in the more civilized civilised situations, like in Australia or uh, in the United States, uh, where the, it's uh, continuously a question of plundering indigenous people again and again. So, so this then, for me, is the mode of how, how do we have a society which continuously oscillate between barbarism and civilization. What does it mean today when the capacity to manage the boundary between barbarism and civilization is diminishing and therefore what used to be invisible acts of plunder are increasingly re-intruding into our civilized space and suddenly we think, oh wow, look, what does it mean when capital allies itself with people who like barbaric forms of capitalism uh, and openly advocated uh, barbaric accumulation So all of this I condense in uh, the book in a concept which I call generalized domestication. And for me, uh, this uh, concept of domestication, I take it very technically because, on one hand, it invites the question of the domestication of nature, but uh, I also use domestication in the sense of taking the two meanings or etymological roots of domestication from, as analyzed by Emile Vendanis, where he shows that. Domestication has its root in both domus and dominus. So domestication is on one hand more of home building and domus, and on the other it's domination. And what's interesting about domestication then is that it no longer creates this divide between the yearning for home, of cuddliness, uh, mother, etc. And domination, which is aggressive, etc. It says that domination is the very mode of creating homeliness. Homeliness is necessary, so. So it's essentially a patriarchal structure where where the homely mother is subjugated in order for it to, in order for her to deliver, sort of like uh, homeliness, uh, if you like. Uh, and that that structure of domestication, I. Extended to show that there is a continuity in domestication of nature and uh, colonialism as uh, a mode of uh, domestication as well. My interest, I know, it becomes. What does it mean then when you think colonial uh, settler societies in an interspecies? species? Uh, what does it mean when you bring in in, in this anthropocentric day? Uh, the interspecies relation amidst thinking colonial sector society. Is there any human uh, settlement which does not involve a priori elimination, etc., of other species? Now, I'm very aware of the banalization that can come with this. Well, okay, there no, Everything, everything is colonial settler, you don't have to worry. You Since we've always colonial settler at the end, it's okay to colonial settler the Palestinians and the indigenous people, etc. So I'm aware of that, that's that But at the same time, I want to stress that there is a transposability of habitus here. That we cannot think that our, our colonial habitus evolved out of nowhere, that it did not have already is training in interspecies modes of existence that... uh,